We should recognize the power of the followers in leadership. The followers are the nerve system of any work that we do. And so we need to, to remember the power that they contribute to us. It's time once again to learn from the past and explore the future. Welcome to the Leadership Frontiers podcast with your hosts, Tara O'Brien and myself, Ron Duran Jr. In compelling discussions, we'll dig deep into leadership topics within business, education, nonprofits, the public sector, social justice, and wherever we may find it. This is brought to you by the University of Colorado Boulder's Center for Leadership. Thank you for joining us. This week on the show, we have Dr. Joanna Mays. We're so excited to have her. She has 25 years of experience in not only the nonprofit sector, but also K through 12 education, as well as higher education, um, especially here at CU Boulder. She has put together a lot of curricula and experiential education initiatives and trainings that have revolved around multiculturalism, inclusivity, gender bias, and culturally competent teaching methods for all of the audiences that I mentioned before. We are excited to have her today because Dr. Mays is going to dig in on some of the topics that are big, not only in the corporate sectors, for those of us consultants that see a lot of issues going on today, but also in our higher education system. Dr. Mays serves as the director of the Master of Arts in Higher Education program at the University of Colorado Boulder School of Education, and she is also the senior instructor in the school's Multicultural Leadership Scholars program. We're so excited to welcome her here today. Joanna, we are so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining us and giving up some time to talk about everything in your world. And we may throw in some random questions just to pick your brain on a couple of topics because you have such an incredible background. You've got one foot in the university and one foot out in the corporate world as a consultant. Um, and so we're just so curious about a couple of different things going on in your world. But let's start off by what your affiliation with the university is and kind of where you've been spending your time with them. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I'm excited to, to share some space with you today. Um, so I don't know very few people who can say that they've been a student, a staff, and a faculty at CU. I was a student here in the 80s and early 90s as an undergraduate student, and I came back as a staff member in the late 90s, early 2000s, where I directed the pre-collegiate development program um, for seven wonderful years. And then I came back again um, as a faculty member. And so I've been faculty, this is my 11th year, and um, I am in the School of Education. And um, I am a senior instructor for the Multicultural Leadership Scholars Program, which is an undergraduate uh, program um, that's affiliated with the Center for Leadership. And I'm also the director of the Master of Higher Education Program. So I wear two hats at the university right now, which is um, often common for many of us. We do many things at, at all times. That's the role I play here at CU Boulder. 
what is that like going from student to, yeah, you've done the whole gamut. Like, um, what is that like going from student all the way up to faculty and teaching students today? You know, it's bittersweet. Um, I, I have a love-hate relationship with CU. As a student, I, I was a Chicana activist and I majored in journalism. And I did all the things that I, I could have done to raise the cause of, of uh, inequities for folks of color. And um, I did that activist work and now I'm realizing that I'm still doing it, but in a different position. Um, and I feel honored to come back to see you and to be in this faculty role because I see the power of students from historically excluded populations um, who see me as a professor. I see that power and that value that it has and because I remember seeing um, Dr. Elisa Flacio, who is my Chicano studies professor, and Dr. Salvador Rodriguez Del Pino, who is my Chicano studies professor, and how I looked up to them. And because I'm a first-generation college student, as were, as were they, and um, and those are the students that I teach now in my undergraduate program that I teach. And so I want to be that link to to let them know that yes, you can not only make it through this crazy place, but you can also come back and contribute to making it a better place. And so that's my role as a faculty member here. And I'm also, you know, very active in a lot of, um, of their social issues that students go through and I support them um, because I know what it's like to be as an, an underrepresented student on a predominantly white institution. So Johanna, outside of the fact that you are a woman of color, uh, and and all the things you just said. Why step into this idea of I want to help? Uh, was there was there a catalyst that that was there a time in your life where you said, okay, there, that's when I decided I want to be I want to be more involved. Yes. So I graduated with a degree in journalism, and my first job was being a reporter for the Denver Post, and that to. To some people, you know, it was like the dream job. And I was like, yeah, I was cool. And being that cub reporter doing general assignment recording. And I realized I hated it because I wasn't able to give back to my people. I wasn't able to lift people up as I climbed. It was all about reporting about things. And I always remember my journalism professors, my mentors, Dr. Polly McLean, who's still here, who's now my colleague. Dr. Joanne Arnold, who was uh, rest in peace, who was my mentor as a journalism student, is telling me, um, do you want to report on the news or do you want to make the news? Mm. And, and I, have to, I would think about that a lot as a student and as a student activist. And then when I got into the field, I was like, this isn't what I want to do. I don't want to report on it. I want to be a part of the change process. And so I was. this was in the early 90s. And I was starting to see inequities and, and to see the, the education gap involving our students. And, um, and I wanted to do more. And so I decided to go back to school and study multicultural education. And my, I can remember my dad just like, oh, my God, you spent all this time and money in this journalism degree. and You're not doing anything with it. I'm like, no, 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 I am. I'm a, I'm a good speaker. I'm a good writer. That's what that degree taught me, but I want to do more with that and teaching others these skills and teaching others how to 
succeed in this educational system that often um, discredits our students of color. And so that's what I decided. I made this huge career shift. And that, that was then, in the yeah, early 90s. Wow. I I can empathize 100% about a what feels like maybe a useless journalism degree. <laughs> but that experience, I imagine for you, really not only teaching you how to write better and speak better, because I know you've authored quite a few articles and books, um, but also how to properly message for each individual audience. I think that's what is amazing about journalism. And I'm wondering, what have you learned or where do you think we are succeeding or failing in our messaging when we're trying to put the value on, on multicultural leadership today? Where, how important is that messaging? How do we message its importance and or how are we failing and can do better, do you think? Yeah, why, why should, if I'm a CEO, why should I, why should I why care? Why do I care? Yeah. Because our world is rapidly evolving into a multicultural society. And our workforce is rapidly evolving to support, to serve, to share space with folks from diverse backgrounds. Just everywhere we look, we're, we're seeing that shift. And so we have to come together and figure out how we're going to best serve them and best work with them. And that notion frightens people because in the field of leadership, leadership has traditionally been, um, there was a fine line between leadership and management. My favorite quote is managers do things right, but leaders do the right things. And I look at that as kind of a mantra of what we look at in multicultural leadership, that we, in multicultural leadership, we are inclusive, we are communal, we value the lived experiences from diverse populations, and we lift them up because our world is changing. And so that's what we have to recognize. Um, and that's the work that I do when I do consulting with organizations, um, letting them know that we're not all just white males anymore, and it's okay. And so let's let's learn about other populations. Let's learn about what makes them tick, what how they lead differently. And so let's figure out ways that we're going to embrace these different ways of leadership and bring them into our surroundings and into our spaces because we're going to flourish after we learn about them. This, this is so fascinating. One of the things that I think a lot of people don't realize is that diverse teams, on average, perform at a higher level. And I'm sure you know this, Johanna. And, and so what what's going on there? Why would a diverse team typically perform at a higher level? Because of the communal aspect of like I mentioned to you. I walk into my multicultural leadership class yesterday, and these are the students I've had in Leadership 1000, um, leadership 2410, and now they're in my third semester leadership class. And I was presenting them with case studies of leadership uh, that have happened in higher ed administrations throughout the United States that involve diverse populations. And the work and the synergy that happened in that room, I wish I could bottle it up and sell it to corporations. The, the language that they use, the terminologies that they use, um, how they 
offer constructive feedback, how it's not at all competitive, which looks so much different than when I teach um, leadership to a predominantly white group of students. There's so much competition in the room and it's far less communal. It's all about who's going to get that right question, you know, answered, who's going to, you know, demand Dr. Mays' attention. Um, whereas in a multicultural leadership setting, you know, I have students who say, yeah, I, I agree with what she said on the other side of the table. And I know her name. Her name was, you know, Lexi. Lexi says something and I'm going to build from it. And it's just, it's this really beautiful synergy that you don't see very often. So that's how I operate my classrooms. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty powerful to see. I, I love that. It's interesting um, to hear that it's much more competitive. I would not have thought that, but now I'm thinking back to where that's applied um, in my experience and I've, I see it. I remember back in 2014, uh, moving to San Francisco to work in the startup tech community for the first time in my life. And I remembered I walked in and there were about 11 people all brainstorming with sticky notes and, you know, very active and engaged in collaboration. I thought this is amazing all to build a product around baby food and baby formulas. Mm. And it, they were building an app and they were designing it for the use of finding good, healthy baby food and baby formula. Mm -hmm. And as I sat and watched this amazing room of minds, I thought, wow, all 11 people are men. <laughs> And I just said, whoa, yeah. as the consultant, I said, time out. Yeah. Not that this is typical, uh, that this is standard, but who are the majority of your customers going to be? Exactly. exactly. And why is there not a female voice in this room for what you're building? Exactly. And they were just blown away. And I think we see that more often than not. How do we fix this, do you think, with our, we're all three faculty teaching in different areas of the university. Um, how do we fix this with our young students who are eager to learn a diversity and inclusion so that we don't have to co-have that scenario happen when they're out in the workplace? That's a tough thing. And, and I've been struggling with this, you know, my whole career in higher education. I think it's, first of all, I, I understand the the urgency of doing this and and making courses like the courses I teach. You know, I also teach in the Department of Ethnic Studies and making these courses a requirement. So you can't graduate without taking a, so many credits of diverse inequity related courses. When it's made a requirement, students tend to balk at it. And I just, I don't know what, the, the right way of introducing these concepts to, to students who have never been introduced to them. So um, I sometimes teach intro to uh, Chicano and Chicano studies and culture. And I could always tell the students in my classroom, those who want to be there because they're learning about possibly their culture or themselves and those students who have to be there because they don't give a damn about anything I'm talking about and their body language shows. Um, and, and so it's, it's that whole requirement thing that I think we have to massage a little bit. Um, and I don't know how to do this. Um, I've been told from students who have had to be in my classroom because of a requirement, 
you're the first Mexican person I've seen other than my maid or my nanny. And I've never seen a Mexican professor before. And I'd love to shock them when I walk into their classrooms because, you know, I'm five foot one, maybe on a good day. <laughs> and I'm clearly Chicana. I, I identify as a Chicana. And they're like, what is she doing here? And so when I'm giving statements like that, then I fire back with saying, okay, here's why you are here. Because these are the only symbols that you see every day or in your world. I want you to see a different symbol of this Mexican woman, whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I, getting back to your original question, I don't know the answer to that. And that, it's, that's kind of one of my lifelong quests in higher education is how do we introduce these DEI theories and topics to students who don't want to learn other than making it a requirement. Yeah, let, let's step let's step outside the university. You know, uh, Tara and I both have a background in industry, and this is not a problem just with students. Yeah. You know, a lot of times when we go into corporations, it's, you know, we know from psychology, people don't like to be told what to do. And yeah. so we go in, we go into these corporations and we tell people, you have to do this diversity, equity, inclusion training. And how many of those people really actually want to be there? And so they're going to be closed off. So, sure. you know, in, in, in the United States alone, we spend $1 billion on this. But I also feel like we're not being very effective. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? And, and maybe how can we do better with that? So whenever I'm asked by a school district, a company, a corporation, a nonprofit organization to do, quote unquote, diversity trainings, I always have a stipulation of I'm not going to do it one time and one time only because um, if you're doing it for someone to check off the box, I'm not your person. And I don't care how much you pay me to do it one time only. My ethics are telling me that I'm not going to do it for one time because you're not going to get anything out of it. So I always, when I consult with these folks and we map out what their goals are for their particular organization, I look at their particular themes or issues that are going on within the organization. And then we map it out in a, a continuum and a, in a succession. So we'll start, you know, maybe doing an intro to the terminology one session, and then we'll go into biases and uh, privilege and power in another session. And then we'll go into some of their, their targeted issues that they're going on, they're happening in the organization in another session, you know, and then we we start thinking about how we're going to get to a place where people are talking about these issues and they can come to an agreement on how to work through them. And so I always I look at the trainings that I do as a, as as a continuum. That's the approach I use. So um, I don't know if that answered a lot of your question here. Yeah, you know, at some level, I'm thinking, you know, I, I agree with you. I struggle with this as well. But I think at some level, we need to get people excited about it so they don't feel like it's a chore and that they have to do it. Uh, we need to find some messaging and some communication around um, getting them uh, to say, this is a good thing, and I'm excited to learn about it and get better at it. So maybe we all need to uh, figure out how to do that better. 
Absolutely. And you also need to be be aware that you get what you pay for. <laughs> and I'm not saying that I'm inexpensive, nor am I saying that I, I, I charge a lot of money, but there's because of our times right now, these diversity trainers are everywhere. They're at, they're coming out of the woodwork. And so you could always tell who's doing it to make money and who's doing it because their heart is in the right place. And so and I've been doing this a long time. And some of my colleagues who I work with in this work, um, we talk about this a lot and we laugh. And we're like, oh, we heard of so-and-so who's doing diversity trainings now. And I'm like, with what education? Oh, because the money's out there. You know, the, the, the money's good. And so people need to be, if they're going to hire someone to do this kind of work, they need to do their research about um, the person they're bringing in and about the background that they're, they're bringing to these, 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 these trainings. Um, and then the end goal. Um, I, I always work with folks to say, what is your end goal going to be? What, what is going to look like for you to know, to feel like you're successful with this stuff? Because yeah, there's nothing worse than going into a training and people are sitting there with their arms crossed not even making eye contact with you because they have to be there or they're looking at their phones because they have to be there because they need to check off that box. We need to have that commitment with them, but it has to start from the outside from the organization. I can't personally make them commit to anything. There has to be some conversations and processes that happen within the organization to make this, this synergy happen. So it, it's, it's, it's a, a very complicated process. Yeah, large scale change, really, um, in the sense of, uh, you know, they have to see what the value is, I think, to them personally, before they're going to have any buy in to make this change. Um, And what we've, where I think we've been not doing so great is negative messaging. Everything is, you know, when we started DE&I, you know, back, I'll say heavily back in the, the 90s, it was all based on let's avoid uh, lawsuits. Let's avoid getting in trouble. It was negative messaging. So now it's the, like Ron said, we've got to find a way to inspire and encourage and bring people to a positive message. One of the things that jumps to my mind when we're talking about this is a part of the diversity conversation, which is women in leadership, women leveling out, um, you know, more 50-50 equal in executive roles this has been a huge topic. In fact, on October 5th, Ron and I are doing a, a panel on this topic. It's pretty edgy, so we're excited about it uh, uh, for Denver Startup Week about should we level the playing field or is the playing field never going to be level? And how do we bring more women to the forefront without overpowering and um, you know elbowing men out of the way? That's not what we're trying to do. So what what advice would you have for us? What are some of the things we should be bringing to that conversation? Or does anything, um, it, do, do you feel strongly about this topic of women in leadership and how to bring them forward more in the right way? So when you say, should we be worried about overpowering the situation? That's exactly it. Okay. That's exactly the stigma that women leaders face every day. How much do I step in? How much do I not? And so if I step in or lean in, and I hate the term lean in anymore, but if I lean in, then they're going to consider me being too manly, too bossy. But if I don't lean in, then I'm going to be this pushover. And, um, you know, I'm going to be 
you know, taken advantage of. And so that in itself is the concept of why women leaders um, need to have the, the playing field. The, the, the playing field has never been equal in all areas in regards to, to gender. Um, and so I say it needs to be a little bit more aggressive. And I say that people need to um, kind of live with it because it doesn't matter how women show up um, in the research that I've done regarding women um, university presidents, particularly Latina university presidents, it doesn't matter how they show up, it's that they just are there that is threatening to them, to the institution, okay? They could show up and not say a word, it's just the fact that they are there is going to threaten the institution. It's, it's funny you say this, John. I'm coaching a young executive right now, and she asked me this question. She goes, how can I be more assertive without being called a certain B word? Right. And so right. what's your answer? I, I told you, you know what I told her? Huh. I said, I don't really have a good answer for you. I, I don't know what to tell you. So help me out here. Okay. So then you also have to keep in mind that there's stigmas placed on women of color being that angry black woman, that angry brown woman. Mm -hmm. So that's a whole other level that we're not even discussing. Okay. Um, and Again, regardless of how a woman, and I'm just talking as a woman of color leader, regardless of how a woman of color leader shows up, she's going to be labeled whatever because she's never shown up before, okay? And so we are in the realm now that these women are starting to take up space and these women leaders are starting to show their worth and show their value and it is shaking, it's shaking the foundation of male supremacy here. And so, um, yes, so going back to your question, um, no matter how she shows up, she's going to be perceived as this B word. Um, it's going to be up to her to figure out how she's going to respond, okay? Um, a lot of the women leaders in my life, all my sisters, my mother, um, the women who I uh, researched about um, and have written about in my life um, have had those internal conversations and saying, yes, I'm going to show up and be considered this, but how I'm going to respond is what's going to make my life easier. And that is the key to it. Are you going to internalize it? And you're going to let things like imposter syndrome overtake you or are you going to just say, yeah, they think I'm this. And so whatever, you know, pass it along. I have work to do. And that's, those are the lessons I've learned from the women leaders in my life. I don't, you know, they say, I don't, I don't really care what they think about me because okay. I have, okay. I have work to do. That's right. That's what I was hoping that I was going to wrap that all up. Cause as if I'm paraphrasing this, I, I'd say be authentic to, you know, yourself yeah. and then don't worry about the things you can't control. Exactly. And the way people think of you and the way they receive you is not something under your control. It's their stuff. It's not your stuff that they have to deal with that stuff. It's not you. And it's mm. too bad. You know, as the, as the only man on this call, it's too bad that, uh, you know, I always say, I don't have to deal with this. 
if I'm being assertive, very rarely am I called an asshole. Maybe, maybe every now and then, but, but I don't, I don't get that. Um, I don't get that kind of, you know, pushback like women do. And it makes me sad that I call it a, a minefield. I think women in leadership are walking in a minefield and who knows when they're going to step on the mine. Well, every single day, every single day. And we were just talking about this with one of my students just now. Women in academia have to, they're, they're told they have to show up differently than men in academia. And my research with Latina university presidents, they're like, um, I don't think so. I'm going to show up how I show up. Um, I'm not going to be the traditional wearing bland clothes with the, the tweed jackets, you know, or whatever. I'm going to show up wearing my big silver jewelry and my bright clothing. And I'm going to be proud of my Spanish accent. And I'm going to have beautiful artwork on my walls that depict my culture. I'm not going to be this person that's going to be in this box in academia that they put men in. And that's, that's to me, it's powerful. And you don't, again, they don't have to say a word. It's just how we show up. And, and we women of color leaders are aware of how we show up. And it's just, it's those little things, our, our positionality. It's those little things that's, that say more than anything that would ever come out of our mouths. I, I know, Tara, you've got a question, but I got to jump in. So what if, what if, Johanna, you say, okay, maybe I'm, I'm a young woman of color and I'm moving into leadership and I'm afraid of repercussions by showing all of what you just talked about. What, what you know, I, it's, it's like, I don't want to lose this job and I don't want to do anything to mess it up. What would you say to somebody like that? I would say they, they would have to get really in touch with who they are internally and realize that they are a trailblazer and that a lot of women are depending on them who come after them to be that person to show up for them. And every day is a risk. Every day as a woman of color showing up and any field in academia and business sector is a risk because you're going to be labeled as whatever, but, um, but you have to look at who's coming behind you. Lifting as we climb, we use a lot of that terminology in leadership studies. And that's kind of how I go about my day. Um, I, everywhere I go, I make sure that, that the young women after me know that um, you're going to be afraid and there's going to be the naysayers, but you have to be the legacy for someone after you. And so that's kind of my motto. Love that answer. Me sure. too. And I, I just love the analogy of kind of trailblazing, as you said, Joanna, um, through a minefield, like yeah. Ron said. And yeah. there, in my opinion, there's power in numbers. Yeah. So when I coach women, I always say, please don't make this trailblaze about you grab a group of women and trailblaze together and throw some men in there and throw some, you know, throw everybody in there. I, I really just think it's kind of a movement where we all need to kind of go together. And if you theoretically picture clearing a minefield, which is a very weird thing that I've had a, the opportunity to do once in my life, um, you do go uh, in a group, right? Yeah, that yeah. This is how you do it. So I love sure. that. And Ron, what I love about this podcast is I feel like we talk to a lot of people in politics and academia that are like all 
rule breakers. And Joanna, I'm putting you in that that group. You're a, you're a rule breaker, but that's what real leadership is, in in my opinion. So, Absolutely. since we have you on this rule breaking of <laughs> how we should behave and shouldn't behave. Ron, I think we should go into the topic um, that we like to go into when it comes to coddling of the American mind. Some people are familiar with the book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And one of the kind of the premise of the author is that we are perhaps being uh, overly, you know, we're coddling. I mean, for lack of a better term, we're coddling, especially young folks, a little too much. That's that's the position he puts out there. And a couple of things that he talks about in the book is microaggressions and trigger warnings. And so Tara and I, uh, a lot of times we uh, talk to folks on how to be uh, mentally tough, more resilient, and those sort of things, and just kind of let things, you know, roll off your back. And so it seems to be at odds with this idea of microaggression and trigger warnings, where, where we feel like possibly, and help us out here, that maybe coddling people is not the right way to go about this. What I mean, what are your thoughts on this? I don't know if this is an area of expertise for you, but what are your thoughts on microaggressions and trigger warnings? Well, let me also throw in there, Joanna, we see this within the university. Yeah. Um, and it's not just CU Boulder. I think this is probably in most educational systems where we are told or suggested as faculty and staff to be careful of what we say around students, be careful of how we talk about certain things or don't talk about certain things that maybe when you and I and Ron were growing up, things were just said. We could just talk about anything, but now we have to be very careful not to offend and hurt and trigger anyone. So that's kind of along those lines. We're just curious your thoughts and you can totally disagree, agree that we'd love your opinion. You know, yeah, I agree with the coddling with this particular generation that we are serving um, because it's happening and it's it drives me crazy as a professor and I am told a lot by certain people that you know watch can watch what you say um, but the topics that I teach are provocative in itself and um, I can't sugarcoat any of them I just can't um, I teach critical race theory. I teach about the atrocities that have happened in our world. I can't glaze or gloss over them because I'm going to hurt someone's feelings. I can't because the stuff actually happened and is continuing to happen to historically excluded peoples. Okay. And so for me to lead out all of that stuff, for me to, 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 you know, and CRT is a buzzword, you know, it's, it's, it's gaining a lot of traction these days. Um, I can't not talk about it. And if I'm going to offend someone, then so be it. Yes, I've been talked to about it, but I, I continue to do it. As far as microaggressions, um, that's the other side of the coin. We as marginalized folks, historically excluded folks, have been affected by microaggressions every single day of every day that we live. And sometimes you don't even see it because it happens so much. Sometimes I have to have my colleagues remind me, oh, that was a microaggression because it happens so much, especially on a predominantly white campus like CU. You just, you just forget about it. And so um, that's the other side of the coin. So I don't know which one you want to talk about more, but 
I, I like to look at um, my classrooms using the terminologies of safe spaces versus brave spaces. None of the spaces I'm teaching in are safe for anybody. I'm going to teach us to be brave, to, to acknowledge the stuff that I'm teaching. And yeah, I have students who walk out of my class, and these are diverse students as well, saying, I have, that stuff is messed up, Dr. Mays, and I've never heard anything about that before. And why is it taking me till I'm a sophomore at CU to learn about this? Or, oh my God, you know, I went home and I talked to my dorm mates about it and we couldn't stop talking about it. And, or um, as a white person, Dr. Mays, I, I am so freaked out about all the stuff that we're learning um, and I'm hurt that this has happened all these, all these years or whatever. And so I like receiving that feedback from my students, good, bad, or indifferent, because when I know that they're uncomfortable, um, that's when I know that they're learning. But I, I want them all to be in a, a brave space to, to be able for us to talk about this. But I want them to be uncomfortable. They do. And you just you just made a fan with me, uh, or, or I'm a fan. Uh, you know, I, I think if we if we can't have these hard discussions here, where can we? And exactly. if we if we avoid these in the university setting, what kind of what kind of model does that set for the rest of their life? So exactly. now forever, they're going to avoid any kind of a difficult conversation that makes them uncomfortable. That's the part that I think Tara and I are on the same page that we're not comfortable with teaching our young people to avoid those things because yeah, it's no fun. Let's be honest. These, these things are not fun, but mm -hmm. they still need to be had. These discussions need to be had. So yes, they do. Um, they do. keep up the good work. I, I appreciate that. And I, and I love the fact that you have the courage to maybe take the heat a little bit. Um, and you're walking, you know, your talk, you, you are doing exactly what you are expecting your students to do so that's great let's uh let's uh finish this up this has been a great discussion but let's wrap this up with our our signature last question and that is what do you see on the frontier of leadership or possibly what can we do better um in the future with leadership so there's a lot of things that i, I think about when i hear those questions i one that comes to mind every single day as i teach leadership is that leadership is an academic field of study, okay? And it's not just a blow-off class that you can take or a blow-off um, major or minor that you can take. Um, there are, there are uh, schools of thought. There are theories of people that have come before me that I'm hopefully contributing to that have taken the time to research different types of leadership theories to make it an academic discipline. So that's one thing that I, I think we need to, to really hone in on. Um, also, we need to recognize that there's not just one type of leadership um, and then we need to disregard that notion and recognize that there are multiple forms of leadership. We also, what we can do better is that we, could, we should recognize the power of the followers and leadership. Um, studies and leadership positions, leadership organization and in organizations, the followers are the nerve system of any work that we do. And so we need to, to remember the power that they contribute to us. We need to remember and how we engage 
with historically excluded folk in the leadership processes, that their voice um, counts, and that um, the idea that inclusive leadership is key, that I think we need to recognize the hierarchical systems of leadership and recognize the flat systems of leadership. And I always do these in my classes. And I put a triangle when I say, here's a hierarchical form. And here's, I put a straight line. And I say, here's the flat leadership. And I, I talk about the pluses and minuses of both of them. But the foundation is that in any organization that we work in, where we have to gather together and go for a common cause, that the inclusivity piece of it always has to be at the forefront. Um, and so I, I think we have to realize that not all leaders are the white managerial type men, that leaders can all, all shapes and sizes and colors and genders. Um, we need to realize that and we need to, to promote those folks in those positions while also paying attention to the followers and the power that the followers bring to our organizations and institutions. Thanks for spending your valuable time with us this week. If you enjoyed today's topics, please leave us a review. This will help us reach new listeners who can benefit from these conversations. We'll see you next time.